and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First, first link. link from SciTech Daily, new synthetic tooth enamel that is harder and stronger than the real thing. Oh. Ooh. So like they could just coat your teeth and you'd be like, Naha, I'm like, like <laughs> tooth armor now. <laughs> Pretty much. But even if you have damaged teeth, a lot of it requires damaging and trying to rebuild that enamel, right? Oh. I have garbage teeth, so I'm stoked about this. <laughs> and apparently this has been super challenging to produce. But researchers have presented an engineered analog of tooth enamel, which is an ideal model for designing biomimetic materials. Mm. And it's been designed to closely mimic the composition and structure of biological teeth's hard mineralized outer layer. And it demonstrates exceptional mechanical properties. So this might not just be for our mouths, you know. <gasps> if there are Can we reasons. coat other things in teeth? Like, <laughs> Listen, I think Emma Frost was a nice, you know, foray into coating the human body with super hard surfaces, but I'm ready for Tooth Man. <laughs> That's awesome. So natural tooth enamel, which is this thin outer layer of our teeth, it is the hardest biological material in the human body. And despite being both hard and stiff, it has viscoelasticity, it has strength and toughness, and it does exhibit exceptional damage resistance, as long as you're not talking about my enamel, <laughs> despite <laughs> being only several millimeters thick. And the reason that tooth enamel has this unusual combination of properties is because of its hierarchical architecture. So it's a complex structure that's made up mostly of hydroxyapatite nanowires, wow. which then consists of magnesium-substituted calcium phosphate. If you understood that, you're probably making more money than I do. However, accurately replicating this, that's been the tough thing to do. But some colleagues of Hewei Zhao presented an engineered enamel that contains the essential hierarchical structure. They're calling it ATE, which is short for artificial tooth enamel. And it says eight. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> anyway, they did a bunch of tests. They demonstrated that the eight <laughs> nanocomposite simultaneously exhibited high stiffness, hardness, strength, viscoelasticity, and toughness, exceeding both the properties of enamel and previously manufactured materials. Yeah, I mean, think of all the things you could coat with this stuff. If it just came in like a little whiteout bottle with a brush, and you could just <laughs> right? like put it on stuff. That would be fantastic. Or imagine having a helmet if you're a motorcyclist or a bicyclist, and you can have hmm. a super thin, super hard that also looks sleek and giant and tooth-like. I mean, I just <laughs> want it as a spray-on. I'll spray it all over my arms and have tooth armor. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we'll send all our soldiers into battle wearing it, and they'd be like, what is wrong with those guys? <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from MessyNessieChic.com, and it's titled, That Quiet Couple Next Door Who Brought Magic Mushrooms to the Masses. 
Oh. Yeah, so this one goes a little bit deep in the beautiful storytelling narrative that it has. Great article, (laughs) and there's tons of images and photos of, like, magic mushroom advertisements, graphics from the 60s and the 70s, and it really has a ton of gorgeous stuff to look at, so definitely give the original article a look through as well. But so, let's begin. Meet Gordon and Valentina Wasson. He's a New York banker, and she works as a pediatrician. After a few drinks, ask them about their honeymoon in the Appalachian Mountains. It was quite the trip. In 1927, the freshly wed lovebirds stumbled upon some intriguing woodland grub while on holiday. Valentina, originally from Russia, was keen to get stuck into her foraged food, but Gordon had reservations. Fascinated by their diverging cultural attitudes towards funky fungi, the couple wanted to dig deeper into the taboos. The Wassons quietly carried out field research into the history of fungi in ancient folklore, art, and religious traditions alongside their day jobs. They sent letters to missionaries, shamans, and anthropologists around the world to learn more about their burgeoning interest. Gordon and Valentina soon became obsessed with their new hobby. The pair went on regular expeditions to Oaxaca in Mexico to study the religious use of wild mushrooms by native populations. In 1955, at the climax of their research, the couple took the plunge and tried psychedelic fungi, psilocybin, for themselves. In doing so, they became the first Westerners to participate in a Mazatec mushroom ritual. Mm. And two years later, on the sly, they published their findings in a hefty academic book limited to 500 copies. The turning point came in May 1957 when the couple's secret passion project was outed to their colleagues at the bank and the hospital, as <laughs> well as all of America. <laughs> Gordon penned a photo essay entitled Seeking the Magic Mushroom for Life magazine during the heyday of the publication. So it's not really like somebody else outed them. They, they yeah, really he did outed it himself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that is as mainstream as it gets. Yeah. In the piece, he details his hallucinogenic high, including visions of mythological beasts, melting walls, measureless seas, and his spirit leaving his body to the sound of ritualistic chanting. For the first time, ecstasy took on real meaning, he says. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Alongside his vivid descriptions, readers could peruse photographs of his Mexico trip and illustrations of several shroom species to identify for themselves. Gordon's 20-page spread on bathing in the supernatural aura of fungi was groundbreaking. Well, yeah, when you put it like that, I mean, who's not going to want in on that? Yeah. (laughs) Suburban families of the 1950s recognized the type of straight-laced guy Gordon was and related to his banker-next-door aesthetic, giving his words an air of respectability. What's more, the description of his outer body experience being like a disembodied eye, invisible, seeing but not seen, sounded ideal for seasoned curtain twitchers. I don't know what that means. Um, (laughs) (laughs) An intriguing upgrade from popping a Valium to escape the tedium of life in the burbs. Mm -hmm. For an even greater hit of the good stuff, Gordon's essay was followed six days later by his wife's first-hand account of their expedition to Mexico. Valentina's debut, titled I Ate the Sacred Mushroom, featured on the cover of This Week, a Sunday magazine inserted in 37 newspapers that reached almost 12 million Americans. Over eggs and bacon, readers once again spat out their coffee as they learned about her technicolor visions of (laughs) a ball in the Palace of Versailles with figures in period costumes dancing to a Mozart minuet. The fact that all of this was coming from a female pediatrician, someone they would trust with their children, 
gave power mm-hmm. to her account as a medical discovery rather than just a surreal piece of literature. Mm. She suggested that psilocybin mushrooms might be used as a psychotherapeutic agent, making her one of the first to advocate for their use in the treatment of alcoholism, mental disorders, and chronic pain. Of course, they didn't discover magic mushrooms. Tribal cultures had known about their healing powers for centuries, but they certainly did bring them to the Western masses. The mushrooming interest in Mazatec rituals initially proved disastrous for native communities, in particular one woman called Maria Sabina. After rumblings in the burbs for a couple of years, experimental hippies and beatniks with less to lose sought out Mexican shamans in the early 1960s. Maria Sabina was inundated with requests from traveling tourists chasing the elusive high, contradicting the purpose of her veladas, which was to cure the sick. It is claimed that Mick Jagger, Bob Dylan, and John Lennon managed to track Maria down, too. This popularity unfortunately led to the pollution of the traditional tribal practices and police intervention in the community. Mm. A decade later, in the 1970s, Gordon Wasson did own up to being the white guy that ruined something special. He (laughs) He stood by his research in the name of scientific discovery, but did express remorse for how how the wide publicity impacted the Mazatec culture and the traditional mushrooms rituals. The married couple dedicated the rest of their lives to this neglected field of study, even when the tide turned against them and psychedelic drugs were made illegal in 1970. Hmm. Along with Maria and her community's generosity, they are responsible for many a psychedelic summer of love. So, next time you spy folk foraging for suspicious-looking shrooms in the forest, (laughs) just remember how it all started. Well, and it's a good reminder, I think, that if you're walking through the woods and you see a mushroom, don't necessarily assume you can just eat that sucker. Like, these are actual plants that grow wild. Like, you can't, you don't know what you're going to be munching on if you're out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mushroom foraging is very difficult. (laughs) Don't do it unless you have experience and you have practice and know how to identify them because, like, people die. Yeah. It does make me think of, like, modern day memes about how ayahuasca shamans are just depressed of guiding yet another tech CEO through their spirit journey in search of the next great app idea. Right, right. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. This next article from Live Science is called Five Million Shipwrecked Legos Still Washing Up 25 Years After Falling Overboard. (laughs) Yeah. So I'll save you the math. The date was February 13th, 1997. And the cargo ship Tokyo Express was sailing from the Netherlands, where not all but many Legos are made, to New York to drop off the shipment. So they were headed southwest through the English Channel, and just as they were rounding the south of England and were about to head out into the open sea, what's known as a rogue wave struck the ship about 20 miles off the coast of western Cornwall. And scientists actually thought for a long time that rogue waves were just like a maritime legend, like they didn't believe they existed, because (laughs) the idea of a random single wave that is dozens of feet high and may even be traveling in the opposite direction of normal wave activity just seemed too weird to be true. They're like, that doesn't happen. Physics is physics. (laughs) But in recent decades, they have been confirmed, though they remain almost impossible to predict. So basically, rogue waves seem to be the result of many smaller waves that are suddenly compressed together and sort of join their heights. Sometimes it's by shifting winds or an awkward coastline, or possibly sometimes through underwater currents that we can't even begin to track, let alone create models for. So they remain just this thing. Your ship is going along just fine. There's clear weather. And then all of a sudden, there's this massive 30-foot wave that hits you out of nowhere. So the wave that struck the Tokyo Express first tilted it 60 degrees in one direction and then 40 degrees back in the other, 
causing 62 shipping containers to fall off into the ocean. And, you know, the truth is that happens more than most people think, and the containers usually just sink to the bottom and are written off. But if the products inside a particular shipping container happen to float, you get a whole different scenario. And indeed, most Lego bricks do float. The ship's manifest listed just under 5 million Lego pieces that were lost at sea, of which exactly 3,178,807 were light enough to float, which is an insane piece of data to keep on the manifest, but apparently they did. The event soon became known as the Great Lego Spill, as brightly colored pieces of plastic began washing up on Cornwall beaches shortly after the accident, and even now, 25 years later, they're still showing up. Ironically, many of the Lego pieces were nautical-themed, including tiny <laughs> octopuses, little life jackets, scuba tanks, and pirate accessories. <laughs> and people were honestly charmed by it. There was this whole community of beachgoers that built up around collecting these pieces. There's a Lego Lost at Sea Facebook group. <laughs> the woman who runs it, Tracy Williams, recently wrote a book called Adrift, The Curious Case of the Lego Lost at Sea. <laughs> <laughs> and having poured over the exact contents of the manifest, they've also been able to build a hierarchy of which pieces are rarest. <gasps> Naturally. So, for example, the original shipping container only held 4,200 octopuses. So finding one of those is cause for great excitement <laughs> among people who get excited about this sort of thing. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. So since then, the BBC has now mapped more than 40 beach locations where the pieces have washed up, which has actually provided some useful data about ocean currents. They note that now, 25 years later, they're still getting some floating pieces, but they're also starting to see some of the pieces that sank but have now managed to make their way to the coastline. Generally speaking, they've been traveling northward up the coast of England over time, but a few have even been found as far away as the Texas coast. <laughs> what? Wow. Like it went all the way across the Atlantic, supposedly. They admit that it's sometimes hard to prove whether a stray Lego on the beach came from the spill or was just left there by a child who brought it, you know? They have some dates of like, oh, this piece stopped being made, so it must be really old, but it's still, it's iffy. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, there are some drawbacks to dumping 5 million tiny pieces of plastic into the ocean. They mm. take a long time to break down, of course, but according to the American Chemical Society, they also release harmful chemicals as they do, which can Ooh. disrupt animal reproduction. One group of scientists recently analyzed some of the weathered beach Legos using X-ray fluorescence, and based on how little they've degraded so far, they estimate that it will take up to 1,300 years for them to completely <gasps> disappear from the ocean. Oh. Unless people go pick them all up first. I mean, every time they wash up on a beach and somebody takes it as a souvenir, that does help. True. And, you know, honestly, Legos are expensive. So if you want some free ones, <laughs> apparently you just got to go visit the beaches in Cornwall. They're all there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, those salty Legos got to be worth a lot. Well, only if we say so. Only if there's a group applying the Beanie Baby scarcity fundamentals. Yeah, of course, once money gets involved, now you're going to have counterfeits. Like people are going <laughs> to be soaking their Legos in salt water. <laughs> we should just figure out some way to get people to think that oil spills are rare. And oh, then, there you go. You know, problem solved. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> don't actually do that, though. That is a severe health hazard. Right, right, right. Left to professionals. I, I just have to disclaim that, you know, just in case. Right, right. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. From popular science, we're about to tackle one of our favorite topics on the podcast. What happens if you get diarrhea in space? Oh, ah. 
bad things. I mean, it can't be good, right? <laughs> NASA flight surgeon Josef Schmid, who takes care of astronaut health both on the ground and while they're in orbit, confirms that the space program is prepared to handle a whole array of poop problems. Quote, there are a whole lot of folks who have issues. <laughs> the only normal person just hasn't been evaluated enough. True facts, y'all. <laughs> In most cases, he and other members of the medical team just try to give the astronaut candidate the medical care they need to take care of the problem. In fact, even the healthiest astronauts can usually find themselves focused on their bowel movements because the ISS usually houses six or seven international crew members at a time, and they all share one or two suction-powered toilets. This hygiene time, as it's referred to, is rigidly scheduled, <laughs> just like everything else an astronaut does to avoid pileups, which can reasonably stress some newcomers out. Like, if you're not mm -hmm. used to pooping on a schedule, <laughs> good luck! And as some astronauts say, that despite the strange effects that zero gravity has on the fluids and solids sloshing around our bodies, the urge to go to the bathroom still hits just as it would on the ground. Astronauts are welcome to squeeze in necessary bathroom breaks by finishing up tasks a little early because no one actually expects them to poop on a perfect schedule. Mm. And in their first few days in orbit, they've got a limited number of daily tasks, so they have a little bit more wiggle room to settle in and poop at will. <laughs> and one of the questions that they ask when they get to orbit is, how is the bathroom function going? Because I know that once there's no constipation, they're really settled in and doing well. <laughs> However, it is worth noting, constipation is way more common than diarrhea. And this might have to do with the fact that microgravity puts the gastrointestinal tract in an odd position. Dehydration, which can increase constipation, is a frequent issue during the first few days on the ISS. Astronauts also know that the position they sit in for launches, which is having their feet at the same level of their hearts, this causes fluids to pool and makes them need to pee, which is something they try to avoid by drinking less before you get shot up into space. And so you can't blame, you know, it makes sense to want to stay dry because on the Soyuz launch vehicles, the astronauts have to pee into ultra-absorbent garments and fitted condoms. So mm -hmm. if you gotta go, like, you can, but let's try to hold it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and during launches, the best way to poop is with the help of what basically amounts to a triple-layer plastic bag on a bucket. Things were even worse, if you can believe it, on Apollo missions, where crew members had to stick plastic bags directly to their butts and use manual pressure to make dangling turds fall inside. Oh my goodness. Okay. To this day, astronauts are given the option of getting an enema before they take off, just to lessen the possibility of a surprise urgent bowel movement while they're en route. I mean, there's a lot of logistics that have to go into this. Yeah. I mean, somebody's got to think about it. It's good that they have. You know? <laughs> oh yeah. You know, and as both of the people interviewed in this article went out of their way to explain Astronauts can't just dump dry poo out of an airlock because what would most likely happen is that it would cluster close to the spacecraft and then stick to the surfaces. So Ugh. right now, the way they get rid of human waste is it gets sent down on used cargo vessels 
which have enough heft to get into the atmosphere and then burn up like shooting stars. So think of that the next time you see a shooting star crossing the sky. (laughs) You just made a wish on some astronaut's poo. (laughs) You know, about as rare as a shooting star, if we're being honest. (laughs) Right, right. And if you do have a better solution for getting rid of human waste on space flights, NASA is open to better solutions. And there is a link where you can submit your ideas at the article. Well. I don't have anything for them yet, but I'll think <laughs> yeah. about it. There you and go. <laughs> I'll put it at the top of my to-do list. That's or right. my to-do-do list. Hey! <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from BBC.com, and it's titled Russian Gallery Security Guard Accused of Drawing Eyes on Painting. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Did he work for the Joker? <laughs> A Russian art gallery guard has been accused of doodling on a Soviet-era painting he was responsible for guarding on his first day in the job. (laughs) During a visit to the Yeltsin Center in Yekaterinburg in December, two visitors spotted eyes drawn in ballpoint pen on Anna (laughs) Leporskaya's work, Three Figures. The avant-garde painting features three abstract and usually eyeless figures. (laughs) The security guard has since been fired and the police have opened a criminal investigation. In a statement, the Yeltsin Center's executive director, Alexander Drozdov, said the security guard was employed by a private security organization. His motives are still unknown, but the administration believes it was some kind of lapse in sanity. (laughs) You don't say. Yeah. She added that he drew eyes onto the painting with one of the Yeltsin Center's own branded pens, penetrating a layer of the paint. Oh. Luckily, the culprit did not apply strong pressure to the canvas with the pen, and as a result, the damage did not go very deep, according to the art newspaper Russia, which first broke the story. But it added that the paint layer on the left-hand face in the painting had crumbled slightly. The Mm. damage was first reported to police on 20th of December, but the Ministry of Internal Affairs initially declined to initiate a criminal investigation as the damage was deemed insignificant. But the Ministry of Culture later complained to the Prosecutor General's office about the decision, and last week police opened an investigation. If found guilty, the security guard suspected of the crime could face a fine and up to three months in prison. The restoration is estimated to cost 250,000 rubles, or roughly $3,345. That's not bad, all things considered. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is an expensive piece of work. Someone's going to spend some time on it, but they're not, you know, it wasn't millions of dollars worth of damage. It's salvageable. And I mean, if you look at the eyes, they're, they're fairly neat. But um, <laughs> they shouldn't be there, so. Right, right. Clearly yeah. out of place. Well, right. according to y'all, obviously yeah. the security guard. I mean, it could have been just as likely that he is a fully realized but unappreciated artist. That's right. It could be like a Banksy. Like, if he later becomes a famous artist, they're going to really regret having taken his eyes off this one painting. (laughs) You know, he could have a PR statement saying he sought to humanize the abstract work to make a comment about how Russia's people are not just faceless peons of the government. (laughs) I think you've got a career in spin. Yeah, I do work in marketing. Oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yes, I apologize for all of it. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. This next article is from Vice, and it's called, Why Are Letters Shaped the Way They Are? Hmm. And the short answer is that we used to think the answer was no reason at all, but now (laughs) linguists are starting to believe that actually iconicity, or the connection of a word to the thing it's referring to, is far more prevalent than we thought. Hmm. 
So the OG theorist here is a guy named Ferdinand de Saussure, who argued that language was nothing but a societal convention in the sense that the letters C-A-T don't have anything inherently cat-like about them. It's just what we've all agreed to call them. And it should be noted that Saussure made an exception for pictographic languages like Chinese and believed mm -hmm. that his theories only applied to phonetic alphabets. But it turns out he was wrong there, too. Yeah. The first hints of this in research came in 1929 when the anthropologist Edward Sapier found that when subjects were asked to assign made-up words to the concepts of big and small, they had a strong tendency to associate E sounds with small things and ah sounds with big things. His mm. theory for this at the time was that smaller animals made higher-pitched squeaky noises, and so that's where the subconscious associations were coming from for his test subjects, he believed. Mm. That same year, Wolfgang Kohler introduced what he called the Takete Maluma effect, which was that most people associated the word takete with a spiky drawing and assigned maluma to the rounder, more blob-like picture they were presented with. But both of these guys were working exclusively with English speakers. The big breakthroughs started coming in the 1950s and 60s when various studies started looking at trends that could be found across all languages. So they found, for example, that when pairs of English antonyms were translated into Chinese, Czech, and Hindi, English speakers were able to match them up to the original English words more successfully than they would have by chance. They also found that presenting someone with a foreign word and a list of choices, they would be better than chance at guessing what the word meant, even if the word came from a completely different root system than their own. Like, mm. it wasn't all romance languages where they're like, oh, well, clearly I know Spanish and this is French and it's not that hard. Like, these were random languages. They also reworked the Takete Maluma test into the Boba Kiki test and began looking at the effect not just across languages, but in both the spoken and written form. And sure enough, the vast majority of people still say that the name Kiki must belong to the spiky star and Boba must be the rounded splat. Since then, there have also been new studies showing the prevalence of the R sound and especially the rolled R sound in connection with the concept of roughness. So in English, this includes words like abrasive, barbed, thorny, harsh, coarse, prickly, and scratchy, whereas mm. smoothness is associated with S and L sounds, as in mm. lubricated, oily, slippery, silky, slick, polished, satiny, and velvety. And they found this pattern to be true across 332 different languages. Wow. So there clearly seems to be something about the way a word sounds in our mouth and the thing that we're associating it with in the real world. Evolutionary linguist Christine Cuskley even believes that the letters of the alphabet are visually associated with the sounds we've assigned to them. So K, T, and X are all angular shapes, while softer sounds like B, O, and D are all rounded. And one of the great things about the internet is it allows researchers to access a much wider group of participants, such as when researchers at the Max Planck Institute recently created an app called The Color Game, which paired up random participants around the world and asked them to communicate color choices to each other using only a set of little, like, wingdings pictures. It's just these random huh. little black and white clip arts. Huh. And two cool things did happen in this study. Number one, people were able to guess better than random chance on what color their partner was conveying. But number two... Over time, regular users of the program began to develop a new complex language among themselves and accurately convey subtle shade differences. <gasps> what? Wow. Yeah. And it developed completely organically the way all languages do, right? Like, mm -hmm. first you have several interactions where you see other people always use umbrella for red. So you figure like, okay, I guess that's what we're doing. And huh. then you see someone give you umbrella jellyfish. 
and you guess red, but you find out the correct answer was pink, and you're like, oh, I get it. And that usage ends up spreading. Mm. And the game itself is linked in the article, but at least when I looked at it, all of the vice traffic had overloaded the server. So maybe check back in a week or two if you're intent on playing. (laughs) On the one hand, it seems fun, but on the other, it's like, well, you're a newbie. There's people full on speaking a language in this thing, and you're like, "Uh, I don't know what to choose. And they're like, ah, idiot. All that being said, iconicity is still subject to the whims of culture, and not all patterns are universal. Speakers of Romanian, Turkish, and Mandarin Chinese don't follow the boba kiki effect. Mm. And Chinese also has the high sounds for small things and low sounds for big things rule reversed. They think of like, oh, that's like a tiny thing. And like an ee is a really big thing, so, which seems insane to me. Hmm. But culturally, like, I can't argue with them. That's what they think. <laughs> but it makes me think a lot about nominative determinism, you know, where they've shown that, like, people tend mm-hmm. to gravitate toward careers that reflect their names. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's always been super fascinating to me. Like, is there something secretly podcasty about Noonan that I'm not aware of, but subtly uh. it's still there? Like, well, I don't know. It's You say your own name a lot. What is it? What do you internalize about something like your own name that you say all the time? <laughs> Or not. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. You just, you just like put me in my own head and I was like, way. <laughs> yeah, and your name is particularly ripe for teasing out all kinds of meanings and usages and, and yeah. things as well. And it would be fair to say I've had a very eclectic life. Uh, <laughs> right. There you go. So, I mean, even my Mandarin name, I'm half Chinese, and my Mandarin name is uh, Xiaotao, which literally means small road. Mm. So it's also a pun in Chinese. Now I'm going to think about that every time <laughs> I say way. I'm going like... to Yep. Yep. You're welcome. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. This one is from Gizmodo. Apparently, some Mazda owners near Seattle have found that their radios are permanently stuck on NPR. Oh. And I guess if you could only listen to one radio station for the rest of all time, that's not a bad one. But for some Mazda owners in Washington State's Puget Sound region, all functionality of the infotainment system have been disabled other than the volume knob. And while it's playing NPR, the onboard display shows it's stuck in a reboot loop. KUOW is itself at a loss as to explain why it has suddenly all this captive audience, other than some speculation that it might have something to do with the retirement of their 3G networks and the rollout of next-gen 5G networks across the country. And while that is a shift that is expected to screw with and in some cases effectively brick tech relying entirely on the older standard, that doesn't explain why many different models of Mazda are experiencing the same bug. A Mazda spokesperson told Gizmodo via email the cause was KUOW's transmission of album cover images without a valid file extension, (laughs) which caused an issue on some 2014 to 2017 vehicles with older software. Mazda has distributed service alerts advising dealers of the issue. And maybe this sounds like a funny isolated case, but as cars start to get increasingly dependent on software and these toggleable subscription tiers, Mm -hmm. I mean, even when the software is working fine, server outages can cause problems on their own. Like when a lot of Tesla owners across the globe found themselves unable to unlock their cars last year. Apparently, there is no known fix for the Mazda issue, short of fully replacing the connectivity master unit, which is, of course, an expensive component that controls the entire onboard display. Mm -hmm. So pour one out to the poor uh, station that... (laughs) 
possibly set out these corrupted files. <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing, though. The vast majority of black hat hacking is giving something bad data that it doesn't know how to handle. Mm -hmm. Like, to have a vulnerability where giving it bad data makes it break like this, that's Mazda's fault. They shouldn't have had that vulnerability in their system. I'm not blaming NPR. <laughs> they don't have any money anyway. How are they going to pay anything? Like <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This is a pretty short one coming to us from TheGuardian.com. It's titled, Ghost Village Emerges in Spain as Drought Empties Reservoir. Oh, oh, like it was underwater. Uh-huh. Ghost village. I was thinking like a village of ghosts, but it's like ghost town. Like oh, it's just yes. an abandoned town. Okay. That, yeah. <laughs> like, just because you can't see the ghosts when the water's there doesn't mean you can see them when the water's not there. Yeah. That's right. And I'm going to say that even if the article is only addressing that in the colloquial version, we can't rule out actual ghosts. That's true. That's you never true. know. I mean, people definitely <laughs> died there at some point, so they oh, might still be haunted. Um, oh, God. A ghost village that has emerged as drought has nearly emptied a dam on the Spanish-Portuguese border is drawing crowds of tourists with its eerie gray ruins. With the reservoir at 15% of its capacity, details of a life frozen in 1992, when the Acerito village in Spain's northwestern Galicia region was flooded to create the Alto Lindoso Reservoir, are being revealed once more. Walking on the muddy ground cracked by the drought in some spots, visitors found partially collapsed roofs, bricks, and wooden debris that once made up doors or beams, and even a drinking fountain with water still streaming from a rusty pipe. Wow. Yeah, such an image. And speaking of images, there are images of the town in this article, so if you'd like to check it out, it really is something to look at. Crates with empty beer bottles were stacked by what used to be a cafe, and a semi-destroyed old car was rusting away by a stone wall. Maria del Carmen Yanez, mayor of the larger Lobios Council, of which Acerito is part, blamed the situation on the lack of rain in recent months, particularly in January, but also on what she said was quite aggressive exploitation by Portugal's power utility EDP, which manages the reservoir. On February 1st, Portugal's government ordered six dams, including Alto Lindoso, to nearly halt water use for electricity production and irrigation due to the worsening drought. Questions over the sustainability of reservoirs are not new. Last year, several Spanish villages complained about how power utilities used them after a rapid drawdown from a lake by Iberdrola in western Spain. The company said it was following the rules. Environment Ministry data shows Spain's reservoirs are at 44% of their capacity, well below the average of about 61% over the last decade, but still above levels registered in a 2018 drought. Jose Alvarez, a former construction worker from Lobios, said he felt a mix of nostalgia and fatalism as he remembered his working days in Acerito. It's terrible, but it is what it is. That's life. Some die and others live, he said. Oh, I mean, it's a good attitude for a ghost village. That's, that's who you want, like, talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> Not going to be ruffled by any exorcisms or anything like that. Yeah. And I mean, it's kind of crazy because, you know, this was not that long ago. It's not like we're discovering some ancient ruins of a city right. from a long time ago. This was 20, uh, 30 years ago now. Sorry, it's 2022. Right. 1992 right. was 30 years ago. Oh, my God. Stop it. You right. stop it. Right. the math. <laughs> Just Anyways, don't do the math. Sorry to do that to you, depending on how old you are. But um, 
it there's some really interesting pictures to look through. It really makes you think about, you know, the the choices that we make engineering wise and the utilities that we use that oftentimes we don't really have a lot of say about. Like who knows mm-hmm. if the people of Acerito even really had much of an opportunity to speak up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Austin could be flooding some small town in the middle of the city for electric power and I wouldn't know. Like yeah. if they just decided <laughs> to fill a reservoir. I, we'd miss it, I'm sure. I'd notice at some point. Yeah. It is interesting that, like, we get both halves of it where, like, part of the world is very concerned about water level rising. And we're mm. thinking about, like, yeah, Miami's going to be underwater. But also parts of the world are having drought where they're exposing these old cities that have mm-hmm. been underwater for, you know, <laughs> we're going to ruin everything no matter what. The rest of <laughs> and on that and 1992 note, was 30 years ago. Let's oh, just, no, you know, no, bring no, it no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> That is all we have time for this week. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Has Literature Ever Changed the Course of History? Mysteries of Stephen Hawking's Doodle-Filled Blackboard May Finally Be Solved? And Life in the Soil Was Thought to be Silent. What if it isn't? So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us and our ad-free philosophy, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.